good morning again. I know, I'm saying it again. Um, some of you are just now tuning in, perhaps next door or online. And um, again, my name is Garrett Connor. I have the privilege of serving as the senior pastor here at La Plata Baptist Church. It's almost been 11 years since the church called me. The last Sunday of April uh, of 2010 was when they called me to be their pastor. Time has flown by, my goodness. Um, my oldest turned 13 this past week. How is that possible? He was so little when we came. Um, I'm so thankful for each day of God's mercy to serve here and for the Lord's provision for our family and encouragement through you, the church, here at La Plata Baptist Church. And I just have so much to be thankful for to, today alongside you. Well, we're going to give our ourselves to the sermon now. I want to start off by saying, for years, the data supports that social connectedness is crucial to physical and mental health. A 2010 review of 148 studies found that people who felt less socially connected had more risk of early death than those who smoked, drank, or were obese, as one article reveals. That's just in 2010. Can you imagine what is said today after walking through what we have in the last year, particularly here in Maryland and Charles County. Despite all this info on this topic, there's been little change in health care, public policy, or individual behavior. Government health departments specifically recommend healthy eating, exercise, to quit smoking, to improve your health, yet tend to omit any mention of social connection. Social connectedness can act as a resource by providing a sense of shared meaning and purpose. Makes me want to ask this question. What do you know about not just having a social connection, but about having a core goal in common with that particular group? makes me ask like this, what's the difference between a group and a team? Well, for example, um, think about it in the workplace. What's the difference between a group of employees and a team? A group is a collection of individuals who coordinate their individual efforts. On the other hand, a team is a group of people who share a common team purpose and a number of challenging goals. Members of the team are mutually committed to the goals and to each other. This mutual commitment also creates joint accountability, which creates a strong bond and a strong motivation to perform, as one study showed. Have you ever been a part of a special family, team, or group that you brimmed with joy to the point because of just your association with their commitments and goals. You felt really a part of something. You remember the effect maybe perhaps it had on you or is having on you right now. Looking at some of those perhaps examples just in the world in general, you know, did, did those feelings last? Is it something that can actually truly last and satisfy? Or will it serve its temporary purpose? And you have to find another one. 
But just imagine with me being a part of something that is eternal in worth and all of life is moving towards it right now. Imagine being part of such a family that it caused you to realize that this is indeed what you exist for. Wow. How open are you today to being part of something greater than any person and anything on this earth? And how would you feel about being welcomed into such an association that you don't deserve to be a part of it, but that you are accepted purely by grace and not your own resume, but on the resume of the one forming the group? And this one is beyond your imagination. How would you feel about about it being based purely on his kindness and grace of bringing you into it? Well, before we think through that more particularly, let's just think through just what's out there for us today. We can continue to make our fundamental fellowship with only those who never challenge our limitations, never assume we have any limitations or wrong, but only share the same political, cultural preferences in order to make ourselves feel more glorious and righteous in an ever-decaying and pleasure-seeking world. Only to be judged by the next generation is not that. We can go the route of isolation, for example, and choose fellowship around our feelings of the day, of the season, and then center our lives purely around us, feeling more disappointed, not only with others, but depressed with ourselves. And I think we've all been there before, where we've been greatly disappointed in ourselves. Or this option, we can see there is an invitation given by our creator to turn from ourselves, which always disappoints ourselves, to turn from this world and receive his grace, join his family, and unite for the sole purpose of giving him glory, which we were created to do. I want to tell you about more about this and how it can be a reality and hope that it is your reality today. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Mark, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you there in the pew. It's on page 972-973 in the pew Bible. And as you're turning there, let me give a little background and context. Mark wrote his Gospel to persuade persuade readers to entrust their lives to Jesus because he is the promised salvation of God of, of sinners from sin and death. The simplest way I can boil it down. But he does so much more than that if you keep reading, showing you why this is true and glorious. He has shown us already in our study how the reign of God against the forces of darkness has broken in through Christ. Jesus has the power and authority to do what only God can do, and he's there in the flesh. God has put on full humanity, as he said he would do in the Old Testament. The reign, the the kingdom of God is present where Jesus is exercising authority. The kingdom of God is present where Jesus is exercising authority. That's still true today. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it awaits it waits to be fully consummated and so when theologians speak of what's called the already and not yet that's what they mean 
that the reign of Christ is visible in his people. Those who've been transformed by Jesus, who are living under his authority, they already, but they await the not yet, that he has not come in full glory to restore all that's broken and destroyed, to make all things new. His power threatens and upsets those interested in maintaining their own righteousness. That's for sure. We've seen that already in Mark's gospel. And that includes the religious types and the cultural elites who pride themselves in their superiority and think of themselves as better than others and righteous in themselves. Those who would not at all want to bow the knee and say that they are undone before God and not worthy of salvation. And these two groups are plotting against Jesus in Mark 3. And now Jesus withdraws from that group to take his message out of the synagogue into the crowds of the world. And that's where we are in context. Look now at God's word, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had, he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word. Amen. Well, you notice this passage summarizes Jesus' activity, which is expanding in popularity. Again, this was a threat to those who hated him. And what is key to see is the unfolding, uh, what's unfolding in these verses is the authority of Jesus. Mark wants to bring it back up again to see his authority. As the Son of Man, the divine Son of Man, he shows authority to heal and to hush. He has the authority to call and to commission. And we are being told emphatically and repeatedly that Jesus ministered by healings and exorcism and chose disciples to become involved not only in this ministry, but also in proclaiming the advent of God's dominion and so bring it in by word and deed. So that's kind of the, just a quick summary of the text we just read. Here's the central point. Is there for you in your bulletin? Here's the central point. Jesus Christ alone forms God's people in himself unto eternal joy and life. Therefore, let us focus on following him as king. Let us focus on following him as king. Point number one. There's two points this morning. Point number one, Jesus is drawing people from everywhere. Jesus is drawing people from everywhere. 
This is verses 7 through 12. That's exactly what we're to see here. Notice his extraordinary magnetism, his amazing power to heal, and the demon's nervous recognition of him. And the transition here is a, a sort of the state of the ministry report. So it's, it's a, kind of a strange passage right on the heels of what happened in the synagogue. And then you have this report. But it serves as a state of the ministry at this point in Mark's gospel. Jesus' healings have attracted large and enthusiastic, but in some of them unreceptive crowds from an increasingly wide area. First subpoint: He does so despite opposition. He does so despite opposition. That's the first subpoint there. The rejection and threat posed by the Pharisees and the Herodians pushes Jesus away and he withdraws to the lake there in Galilee. So despite opposition, Jesus continues to draw. The crowds mentioned three times figures prominently in the passage and their motivation is evident. Look at the text. They came to touch the healer and be made well. They are attracted to Jesus but don't have a real understanding of him, well, at least not yet. And by the way, when you read about the disciples, you can see how little they understood. But notice that Jesus does not rebuke their self-interest. Did you notice that? He accepts the throng of people without approval or disapproval, and he meets the needs they bring. Beloved, this is why we shouldn't shy away from doing good to our neighborhoods and communities and support medical missionary efforts and mercy ministries that preach the gospel. In fact, we should expect people to want goods but not want Christ. Yet God has appointed people all over the place to come to Christ. And so I pray that we are showing love to our neighbors and neighborhoods and communities for the purpose of proclaiming to them the kingdom of God in Christ. Notice how they throw themselves upon him. The self-important and those who think they are, are so healthy dismissed him altogether in the previous text. These droves are throwing themselves at him. It makes me want to, it makes me want to ask this this morning. Are, are you perhaps someone who says, I'm good, Pastor Garrett. I, I don't need that crutch of Jesus. But what about when you, you're not good and, and when your strength is gone? Friend, the Bible wants us to see that our physical health is not the measure of our need of God. The truth of the matter is that we are all sick inwardly with sin and rebellion against God. In fact, we're dead in sins and transgressions. And there are none who are righteous. We've all hated God and exalted ourselves. Oh, friend, we are all in need of throwing ourselves at Christ for help and turning to him as our only hope who could redeem us from our sins. And he paid that redemption at Calvary when he was nailed to that cross. And he bore our, our sins, the sins of any and all who'd repent and believe. And he was raised from the dead for our justification, just as God promised he would do. Some of you today really need healing. Spiritual healing. You need Christ. Come to Christ. Crowds, by their very nature, by the way, are seldom able to grasp truth. But Jesus continues, and nevertheless, the crowds are hearing. Let's note that what is key is in Christ's preaching is that people put their trust in him as they know him in that situation now, to put their trust in him. That's what's key as he's preaching, that they would put their trust in him. 
In the development of the narrative in Mark, it's not yet time for a full and appropriate understanding of who Jesus is, since the traditional titles can be rightly understood only in light of his, his suffering, death, and resurrection. So even the titles of Christ, Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, was, being, was in some, so many ways misunderstood. And Jesus would bring full clarity to what it meant, what it meant for him to fulfill his role as Messiah in his life, death, and resurrection. Second sub-point here on point, point one, he draws many from surprising distances. He draws many from surprising distances. The point of these ge- uh, geographical references seems to be made to make clear that people were coming from the north, the east, the south, and the west to reach Jesus. That's exactly what Mark wants you to see. They're coming from everywhere, just as God said they would. The list of places from which the crowd comes uh, includes the south, Judea, Jerusalem, and Idumea, the east, beyond the Jordan, and the north, and around Tyre and Sidon, foreshadowing the wider mission which the naming of the twelve will inaugurate. These regions may not seem like anything to you, but they should. These names should jump out to us all. People are coming from Idumea. You know what that is? That's Edom. You know, that's one of ancient Israel's ancient uh, foes, Tyre and Sidon. Also, we know they were enemies of, of God's people in the Old Testament. These are Gentile locations. The nations are coming to Christ right here. How much did Isaiah and the prophets proclaim this? A lot. Notice how Jesus could hardly preach without being crushed, so he gets disciples, disciples to get him a boat. That would have been a unique pulpit, right? So if Jesus were to teach from the boat, then the people would not be able to crowd and crush him just to, or just lay their hands on him, providing he was just far enough out in the water so he could not be easily reached. He was quite practical. He always concentrated on preaching and teaching. That's what this is about here. Jesus healed, showing his authority over darkness and over, over the physical uh, things of earth, but as we've seen in Mark's gospel, he came to preach and to call people to repent and trust in him. This is his primary mission, if you remember from chapter 1, verse 38, rather than healing. So that reminds us that if our good deeds and mercy ministries and giveaways don't include the preaching of the gospel, then we're missing it. We're missing it. Let's draw people in, uh, in, in evangelism through our love but love them truly by calling them to God's kingdom through Christ Jesus our Lord. So if the next time a Mercy's ministry wants to set up camp here on campus, which they've done before, we should be there handing out tracts, preaching the gospel, whatever we can do to tell them about not only how to escape temporal suffering, but how to miss eternal suffering and to come to Christ. The drawing power of Jesus, wow. I mean, his love, though, doesn't thrill everyone Look at the next sub-point there, verses 11 and 12. He is the only threat to our spiritual enemy. He is the only threat to our spiritual enemy. We are not that. He is. The text reveals the evil spirits. The demons responded in fear and identified him by his title, You are the Son of God. In stark contrast to Jesus' obstinate human opponents, the impure spirits at the mere sight of Jesus confess what God has already declared concerning him. Don't miss the picture here. The human and the demonic reactions to Jesus are linked by the use of similar verbs. 
the human sufferers fall upon him in their, in their agitation to touch him. And the unclean spirits fall before him, blaring out his divine identity. The knees of both earthly and unearthly creatures are being, beginning to bow before Jesus, and even the mouths of the demons are confessing his eschatological lordship. This is a preview of what the Apostle Paul said, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they recognize in Jesus not just a great healer, the, the demons, but a spiritual power and presence of an altogether different order from themselves. And so they yell out Jesus' real identity, which so far we know the crowds hadn't yet imagined and even the disciples had perhaps only begun to guess at. But Jesus is the Son of God, that is the Messiah, the true King of Israel, the eternal uh, King who would rule from David's throne eternally. But again, don't miss the irony in the story. Jesus is revealed as the appearance of the God of the Exodus. It is also true that the reaction to his miracles is no more perceptive than that of Pharaoh and the others to the great signs performed in Egypt. The supernatural world knows well who Jesus is, but does not wish to acknowledge him unless forced to. While mere mortals still do not really know who Jesus is, even though he has performed great miracles, and even though they are impressed by his mighty works and followed him around. People still, uh, st there's, there, there's that surprising aspect there. The account in Mark reminds us that the, that the devil oppressed people with sickness. We've seen that already. Luke 13 reminds us, for example, that Jesus heals a woman who had been bound for 18 years by the evil one in physical illness. So Satan does work in physical illness sometimes. Read Job. And often in the gospel accounts, you cannot connect the illnesses with the, you can, you can connect the illnesses with the assault of the evil one. And that's why the author signaled to us that the kingdom of God has broken in through Christ who signifies the reality through healing and granting victory over Satan. Don't miss that. When he's healing, you're seeing his power, not, over, not only over physical, but over the spiritual. So, beloved, I just want to say it's good and right to pray for healing, church, because we know that God has purchased our final healing in his son at Calvary, remembering that we have not gotten the full inheritance of our salvation in this life, Nevertheless, the Lord distributes healing as he pleases. Now notice that Jesus' silencing of the demons here again. We've spoken about this before, but the time for revealing his identity had not yet come, and the demons were hardly the proper channel for such disclosure. That's why he tells them to hush. He rebukes them. The wicked ones would associate in context, by the way, in if you keep reading chapter 3, maybe go home today and read it, reveals that wicked ones would associate him with the demonic. They would claim that he did things by the power of the demonic, which is horrid. And the full understanding of Jesus as Lord and Savior would come, though, friends, in his time. It always comes at his time of disclosure. So no matter how orthodox our confessions, here's what we learn here. Jesus remains unknown to us until we follow in his way. We must follow him. The demons were not following him. They despised him. We need to know him rightly before we try to make him known. But that verb there, rebuke, is the same 
uh, same verb used later in chapter 4, rebukes the wind and seas to be still, same term. So if you think it's just a verbal rebuke, you know, hush, that doesn't grasp the weight of it. It's, he's muzzling the demons like the quelling of a storm. It's a sign that he has overmastered them. And he therefore both expels and silences the demons with a word. I want to be clear that God has come to us in the flesh and is forming a family. And this kingdom family, of course, has an opposition. It's called the world. It's the kingdom of darkness. And this kingdom family centers around God and his holy purposes. As you might imagine, not everyone wants this. In fact, all of us in our natural impulses are far more excited about our own kingdoms and agendas. And we rarely ask ourselves, how is that working out for me to be so centered on myself? For me to demand the world to worship me? For me to dwell in the house with my parents or my loved ones and be so centered on myself that I'm essentially asking them, give glory to me, worship me. Friends, that's the, that's the kingdom of self. That's the kingdom the dark one wants you to give into. But Jesus calls him to himself. He's the one who has power and authority. And he's bringing together this glorious family in himself. Don't you want to be a part of this family? Redeemed from your sins and transgressions, forgiven and cleansed, filled with the love of Christ that images him and gives him glory. Jesus Christ alone forms God's people in himself unto eternal joy in life. Therefore, let us focus on following him as king. Point number two. This is the last point. Jesus is creating a people to follow him. Jesus is creating a people to follow him. Verses 13 through 19. First sub point there. He ascended and selected as one divinely appointed. He ascended and selected as one divinely appointed. The setting for this appointment is, you see that in the text, the mountain which presumably is meant to be reminiscent of the setting of, at which Israel was constituted as a people. Mark knows exactly what he's doing here and writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is portrayed deliberately as a new Moses in the Gospels, greater than Moses, leading not slaves out of Egypt, but sinners out of bondage to sin. We're told at verse 13 that when Jesus called unto himself those whom he wished to call, they responded. Friends, let's just be clear here. They, just like us and Adam and Israel and the disciples, are not the heroes of the story. Jesus is. He is forming the people of God in himself. And make no mistake, the choice was Jesus' alone based on his own desire. The text says those he wanted. Remember what he said to the disciples? You did not choose me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. God exercises a freedom that we don't as creatures, and Jesus is showing that authority. He ascended and selected as one divinely appointed. Notice also the next sub-point. He created and commissioned 12 as God. He created and commissioned 12 as God. There can be little doubt that the number chosen is deliberate and is meant to allude to the 12 tribes of Israel Symbolizing the end time restoration of all Israel, which was expected at the end. Every Jew knew that there were 12 tribes in Israel, or at least that there had been. 
And these 12 corresponded more or less to the 12 sons of the patriarch Jacob, whose stories are told in the book of Genesis. At this time, 10 of the tribes had been lost uh, seven centuries earlier when the Assyrians invaded and carried them off. But the prophets had spoken of a coming miraculous restoration, and a great many Jews were longing for it. In fact, included in this great view of restoration would be the bringing in of the Gentiles too. And the time would come, they believed, when their God would turn everything around and make them a great nation once again in Messiah, in the son of David. So when Jesus called the 12 of his, of his followers apart from the crowds and gave them special status here and a, a special commission, nobody who heard of it could miss what he was doing. He was saying more clearly than any words could have done, this isn't simply a great healing mission. This is the restoration we've been waiting for. It's happening at every level, spiritual, physical, social, and inevitably political when he comes again. But implicit in the choice of the twelve is a renunciation of the powers that be in Jerusalem. Jesus, the Messiah, has come, and he hasn't gone to them. He's drawn some to himself, and if you know this list and this bunch, we all should be surprised. That's the ones you got? And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But people respond by hearing, which makes, uh, he sends them, and, they're, and him sending them out, he sends them out to preach. And it gives them authority over the spiritual forces. And people respond by hearing, which makes the sending out of his disciples to preach so crucial. Verse 14. And the word about Jesus will be broadcast by authorized representatives and, eat, and will reach uh, even wider audiences. These apostles, these sent ones. The Lord's preparing us for the office of the apostle that we'll learn more about in the New Testament. That Jesus commissioned them in a unique authoritative office. But the question of how they were to hear, how people would hear, will be brought up in chapter 4 of Mark's gospel. But nevertheless, the message has to go out. And he's commissioning and sending and give them authority to do it. Notice the threefold commission to be with him is the first one. You notice that? Of the commission, the first thing you got to do is be with him. Then to preach, then to cast out demons. Their ministry, like that of Jesus himself, would be to announce and in a sense to embody the presence of the reign of God, the kingdom of God. They're to be with him and to share his mission, but being with him comes first. Notice that from their from their close companionship with Jesus came the power to preach. That's where the power comes from. The closeness with Jesus and to cast out demons. And so today, from our prayer life, our Bible study, and Christian fellowship comes the power to serve in his name. Is the application vague? Is Pastor Garrett saying we need to be praying, reading our Bibles, and coming to church? Yes. And Amen. I'm only saying what the word would say and what the apostles would say and what church history would tell us in clear unison to be prayerful, to be in God's word and to gather with God's people so that we might serve his, in his name. You know, people often think of their, they, they miss, uh, misappropriate the emphasis here in, the, in their work to cast out demons and think that that's our main calling. I need to go cast out demons. That's not, that's not what that's at view here. 
too often we think of demonic activity based maybe perhaps on film or even dramatic events in the text of Mark. But the kingdom of darkness does, uh, you know, while it does manifest itself in visible ways in some parts of the world as a part of the strategy of terror, that's not the only strategy the demonic realm seeks to employ. The, 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 the evil one's main play is the art of deception. His name literally means deceiver. Most people who live where modern science has shaped everyday life have little awareness of Satan and the demonic forces of the world. And he's content with that. You, never, you ever notice why they have no, like the world, for example, especially the modern world, has no category when grotesque evil takes place. They don't have a category for it because they've never been given one. They want to call it, quote, barbaric. That was barbaric. You know what's in that language when someone says it's barbaric? It means it happened because there's some lack of progress. That that society or that group of that society is not progressive enough. That's their category. It's progressive. They have no category for evil and the demonic. Friends, Do you want to pull back the curtain for a real look at the operation of the evil one? Look no further than how people are held under the sway by the illusion that the deification of self is an experience of autonomy and freedom when in fact they are in perfect sync with his desires and enslaved to their sins. When you see your neighborhood and workplace and news feeds full of worldly priorities and self-exaltation and self-righteousness, you are seeing the art of deception by the evil one. When you see a society consumed with selfishness and immorality and pleasure-seeking, taking on more and more forms of narcissism and self-mutilation, you are seeing a society under the sway of demonic influence. He's got them right where he wants them, chained to what, what they call as their freedom, but there's no freedom there. They are slaves to sin. They couldn't walk away if they wanted to. They're only hardening themselves in sin. Friends, spiritual warfare today, as it always has been, is against lies. The kingdom of darkness wants you to think of how you can numb yourself to the reality of death, to the reality of God. The kingdom of darkness wants you drunk on this world. It wants you distracted by more media, more tablets and videos. It wants you numb to heaven and hell. It wants you to think our main problem in America is what kind of car you drive above the issue of tearing apart of a child in the womb. It wants you distracted and uh, uh, distracted by an aspect of racial injustice in one corner while destroying communities of ethnic diversity on the other. It wants you to, de- 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 con- it wants you to deconstruct every aspect of youth's faith in God while never destructing and tearing apart the bankrupt and demonic lives of Rousseau and Marx and Nietzsche and Russell and Sanger and Foucault. Oh no, we can't deconstruct them. And for the horrid lives they lived here on earth. And they have become this world's messengers and preachers. Are you kidding me? These worldviews all have one thing in common. They hold themselves up 
and mankind against the knowledge of God, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And Ephesians 1 and chapter 2 reveals that prior to our conversion, we are under the, under the domain of sin and Satan. Church, just rejoice in this truth right now. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the rule of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. Friends, that's what's going on in our world. Sure, there are pockets where on missions field where you see more of the, the freaky things that we would call it. But the demonic presence in our country, in our secular West, is overwhelmingly visible if you pay attention. Friends, don't forget that in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26, we're taught about the preaching of Christ. He said, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and, listen, and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. The people who are in the traps of the devil are no less endangered ultimately than those who foam at the mouth or see apparitions or hear voices or go into convulsions. Have I, are you following me? The path to deliverance is by means of the glorious power, powerful, ordinary, everyday ministry of teaching God's word and the power of God's fruit-bearing spirit. That's our weapon. It's not some, uh, what some guy does on television, supposedly broadcasting some formula. No. We come armed in prayer and with the word and share Christ. Setting people free from the power of Satan is our mission. Just as it was these messengers, these apostles. It can be secular people who don't believe there is such a power or animistic people who do. But nevertheless, we are to take Christ to them. I like to think that I've always done this. Well, I haven't. I get fatigued in this world. I get upset. I can't even watch the news anymore. It's hard to see what's going on. But we don't shrink back. We know who's in charge. We know who ultimately rules the world. The more typical yet supernatural way of deliverance by the Holy Spirit comes by preaching and teaching and counseling the word. It comes with the summons to trust in Christ and repent. And it takes trusting in God and his power to do what we are utterly helpless to, to do. And perhaps you're here this morning and you are in chain to your sins. Or you're listening to me online and you know that you are on a quick path to hell and devastation for all eternity. And you have no hope in yourself. You have no message from this world that can give you any comfort. Your mind is wrecked. You're wrecking yourself personally and physically, and you're harming those around you, and you are desperate for a line. And I'm extending it to you right now from the Bible that God loves you and he's willing to forgive you. Come to Christ. Come to the divine Son of Man who shed his blood on Calvary, not as some poor martyr, not as someone that we feel sorry for, but as the one who would satisfy God's just sin, God's just wrath against our sin. He would satisfy God's just demands against our sin at Calvary. 
You see, either we pay for our sins against the infinite God for all eternity, or the infinite God comes and takes on that role for us, fulfills all righteousness, and takes on our sin debt and guilt and curse and bears it at Calvary. Jesus came to do what we could not do for ourselves. He had to be man to live out the righteous life we couldn't live, and yet he's also God, the only one who could satisfy and endure the wrath of God. You need Jesus. We all need Christ. Come to Christ. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Do it today. There's power in his name. In this, we are to be earnest in prayer, friends, as we take the mission of Christ to the world. Earnest in prayer, purity of heart and life, not grieving the Holy Spirit and walking close with Jesus. I can tell so much about my, where I'm at in my heart by how often I've spent time with the Lord that week. Why is my heart dull? Why is my evangelism lacking? I can, I can trace it quickly. I've not spent time with Jesus. Friends, God's people are sometimes tempted to think that Satan is in control. He's not. He's on a leash. He's allowed to go as far as God's sovereign purposes allow him to go. And, and it's towards his own humiliation and destruction. What he intends for evil, the Lord's going to reveal his great purposes. Satan cannot frost, frustrate and God's sovereign decrees and plan and his kingdom, this world, will never have the final say. Okay, back to the text. I want to be clear. There is a separation involved in being a disciple. Did you see that in the text, how they've been separated? That's a picture for us. That's what it means to be a church, by the way, to be called out, ecclesia. Um, that's what that term means, to be called out. And this, you're getting a small picture of it here. Called out. Our new identity is not in anything. Our identity is in Jesus. Yes, I am Garrett Connor. I am from little old Hilliard, Florida. I am the son of Don, Donnie and Joan. And I can go on and on. I'm a Hilliard Flash, all those kinds of things. You know, that earthly, I, earthly identity I could build in myself. That's not who I fundamentally am now. First, I am a child of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I've been called out to serve him. And so all of a sudden, all of my priorities, all of my possessions, everything has a different view now. I'm focused on heaven. That's the way I should be as a Christian. The task of being with Jesus is one that's harder than it might first appear, beloved. The 12 have to learn that there's a difference between hanging around with Jesus. Some people do that at church. They like to hang around church and hang around Christians. But when it comes to following Christ, that's, not, that's where they check out. Because the, the disciples are going to have to learn about what it means to share in the toil of ministry. Ministry is war. The harassment of crowds they're going to find about. And the bitter drought of suffering. They're going to have to learn what it means to take up the cross and follow him. And so will you. And so will I. But friends, isn't it encouraging how people with broken lives come to Christ with little potential for good, for lasting influence, and yet Christ with his marvelous power has molded and shaped them and turned their lives into a blessing? Jesus called, this is what's happening here. And friends, think of, as you think about Christ in your life, he causes us all to sing, all I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. Here it is, Lord. But he made something beautiful out of my life. 
to the glory of his name. Don't you need to hear that today? That he could take our wrecked, messed up lives and backgrounds and do something beautiful to his glory? That's the Jesus we serve. And when you love one another in this church and you love your neighbors and you're living the gospel, he is working that beauty out in your life. He's working Christ out in and through you. You, you should be surprised. This is I am. Wow. I would have never done that on my own. Only by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Do you know this today? Do you remember what you were, where you were headed, and how you used to be prior to Jesus? It wasn't pretty. It was jacked up. Friends, are you submitting to his process of turning your life into the beautiful praise of his name? And does your life give off the sweetness of Jesus' grace? If you're going to be a part of this team, this kingdom, this family, there's a balance of being both in the world and yet not of the world. There's a separation unto him. The world should see that. Last subpoint. He draws and collects the surprising. Bill just builds right into this next point, last subpoint. He draws and collects the surprising. The impression that one gets in the, is that the 12 was a socially diverse group, including both fishermen and, the, and their nemesis, tax collectors, and both the tax collectors, collector and those who opposed paying any taxes to Rome or their overlords, indeed, those who had supported opposing such oppressors even by violent means. This was a, talk about ragtag group. Who, do, who could unite these people? Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can bring together such diversity and unity in the body. That's what the church is to be. The church should marvel that Jews and Gentiles, that all of us different types of people are able to come together in such a beautiful way, loving one another, suffering with one another, encouraging one another, in any event, the list begins in good fashion and ends in a depressing fashion. One of the handpicked 12 is remembered for only one thing, betraying Jesus. The point to remember is that everyone of them belonged to the class of society called the people of the land, despised and disowned by the professional scribes and leaders and the elite of the Herodians. So this is it's not a religious man among them. And more than one of them seems to have had some link with Jewish nationalists called the Zealots, the freedom fighters for the Jewish resistance to Roman rule. And a good and valid point can be made of this surprising association. I mean, the Zealots and an ex-compromiser and traitor to his nation's cause can come together in the new society that Jesus is creating. And Judas may have well uh, have been the only non-Galilean in the bunch. Iscariot means man of Kerioth a village of Judah. And Judas is a stark warning against half-hearted discipleship. But remember, the unmasking of Judas later on took everyone except Judas by surprise. All the other ones were thinking, is it me? They were concerned. You know, is this going to be me? And we'll learn more about Judas's real focus in, in his kingdom <laughs> in contrast to what Christ called him to. But their companionship with him is to lead to service that benefits others. They are not merely on the receiving end of the outbreak of this power, but become channels that touches others, and so should we. 
Again, we're to see what the Apostle Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. When Paul says that, you know what we're supposed to say? I want to be one of the foolish ones, Lord. <laughs> That's not in our flesh. It's not in our nature. We want to be praised. We want to be identified. We want to be strong. But the way, in the, kingdom, the way up is down in God's kingdom. Lord, make me a fool for Christ. I'd rather be wise in your sight than the, uh, wise in the eyes of the world. And he calls us foolish ones into the greatest service, the greatest uh, team, greatest family we could ever be called into. So let me conclude. We, we can continue making our identity and, and belonging with those who share you know, our views and on this earth in order to make ourselves feel more glorious and right. We can choose the route of isolation and really just fellowship seasonally from time to time with those who, who um, uh, mostly around ourselves and, and, and grow more and more depressed, not only with ourselves, uh, with others, but mostly with ourselves. Or we can hear the invitation of Christ to come to him, to put your trust in him, to be commissioned and sent by him to tell others the greatest news they could ever hear the greatest love they could ever know and the greatest future they could ever expect, one that's eternal, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, friends, are you among those who are desperately trying to get to Jesus? Do you see how desperate you are for him, to run to him? I often get asked, uh, about sermons I listen to when I have a chance or what I like to listen to. And to be honest, I like to listen to evangelistic sermons. I love to hear those old Graham sermons where he's pleading with people to come to Christ. It encourages my heart. Why? When he gives the invitation, there's a part in me that wants to jump up and go forward. I want Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to do it again today. How about you? Jesus says, says to us, come ye sinners, poor and needy. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we were so distant from you, more distant than those even in the proximity of these lands coming to Jesus. Lord, our, our hearts were far from you. And you drew us to yourself. We thank you for your kindness to us, that you would save us, redeem us, commission us to go and share the gospel and ask desperately that you would free people, Lord, from the enclosed tombs and slavery of sin. Father, we pray you'd help us to do that. Help us to rejoice in our Savior today more and more. In your name we pray, amen.